Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the Scriptures. And good morning, Chapel family. What a blessing to be here this day with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you that because of Jesus, we have not just a hope of heaven, but a certain hope, the knowledge for sure that when we close our eyes in death here, we open them with you in glory, and that is where our sister Barb is. She was very vocal and uh, very adamant about her faith in you, and so we rejoice that she is now Uh, free of the suffering and difficulties of these past years. We pray for the family and for comfort for them. And Father, we thank you for the Bachaco family, that they are now part of our church uh, family, are part of our missionary partners, and we look forward to getting to know them. We ask that you would bless them and continue to provide for them and to open doors for them to be effective in ministry and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in a land that uh, is very needy and there are many, many ministry struggles there. Uh, but what a, what a wonderful place for them to be. Father, as we come this, in these moments, we open your word. We are so thankful that you have given it to us where here we can come and hear from you. And I pray that our Physical ears would be attentive, but even more so our spiritual ears would be receptive to listen to what you have to say and then to put it into practice in our lives, in our homes, in this week ahead. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, take out your Bibles and open to the book of James in chapter 4. If you're Visiting with us this morning, perhaps from out of town, here for Thanksgiving, again, we welcome you. Glad to have you here. We began a number of weeks ago a study going through this little book of James, and we have found it to be a wonderful book as well as very convicting. James hits us right where we are, right where we live, with very real challenges as he calls us to have our real faith meet real world. As believers in Jesus Christ, it should make a real difference in how we live every single day, at home, at work, at school, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, our faith and trust in Jesus should make a difference. We ended last week with verse 10 of chapter 4, and where it says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In this section of James' little letter, he's addressing a problem that we as Christians often have with pride and our need to be humble. We live in this world, we are immersed in its wisdom, we are saturated in its self-centered thinking. He talked about the wisdom of the world in chapter 3. And how we need to be living according to the wisdom that is from above. Heavenly wisdom. Humility does not come naturally to us because of this earthly wisdom that we are immersed in. 
And so we tend to spend a lot of time nursing our egos and protecting our pride. Like Bob, the local barber, he was well known for being arrogant and negative. And one day, Bill, the town plumber, came in to get a haircut. And, and uh, as he was getting his haircut, Bill happened to mention that he was going on vacation in the next week. They're going to head to Rome. And he was hoping to meet the Pope. Barber Bob's reaction was very typical. He's a, you, meet the Pope. <laughs> Don't make me laugh. The Pope, he sees kings and presidents. He will never see the likes of you. Why would he want to talk to you? You're just a plumber. Well, a month later, Bill was back for another haircut. and As he sat down in the chair, Bob said, well, Bill, how was Rome? Bill said, oh, it was great. I saw the Pope. And Bob said, yep, right. You and 10,000 other people in the crowd in St. Peter's Square. Bill said, that's right. There I was among the crowd. And as I was getting ready to leave, two Vatican guards came up to me. And they, they came up on either side and they said, the Pope would like to see you. And they took me upstairs to meet the Pope and there in his private apartment. And I, I went there and when I knelt down uh, to talk to him, and Bob said, yeah, what did he say? And he said, well, he said, oh, my child, who gave you that lousy haircut? <laughs> we all spend a lot of time uh, nursing our pride. We learned here in James last week that God desires a relationship with us. Amazing. The God of the universe cares about you and me and wants a relationship with us. But as it says in verse 6, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God desires to lavish upon us his grace and the grace of a relationship with him but that grace of a close and intimate relationship with God fellowship with him is reserved for the humble and so James has taken time in this letter to help us to understand what humility is because it doesn't as we said, it doesn't come naturally to us, and we don't see much of it exhibited around us. And we saw last week in verses 4 through 10 that he gave instructions about how we can have humility before God, what it looks like to be humble before God. And now today we're going to be in verses 11 and 12, and here we will see another aspect of humility which needs to be exhibited in our lives, and that is humility toward one another, humility toward others. Lastly, in verses 13 to 17, we'll be there next week, we'll see a third aspect of humility which regards our plans and our ambitions, but we'll go there next week. Right now, let's look here at verse 11. Chapter 4 of James, I hope you have it open before you and will follow along as I read. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. 
But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, it's, it takes a little bit of looking at this a little bit to really understand what he's saying, but he points out a problem that is fairly obvious. He says there is a problem, and he, by the way, he notes that it is an ongoing concern. It's an existing problem. The Greek grammar indicates he's asking them to stop something that's already in progress, already in practice. It's literally translated, stop speaking evil against one another. Stop it. You're already doing it. So this was apparently a problem in the first century church all the way back then with all these young, excited believers who come to know Christ and they come together and yet there is among them speaking evil against one another. And I realize things haven't changed much from then till now. Still among Christians today and churches today, there is, at times, there is a problem of speaking evil against one another. Two particular and related issues that James mentions here. As he says, do not speak evil. And then in the next phrase, anyone who speaks evil, the word there can be translated to slander. It is to speak against is to say bad things about someone. It can mean to criticize, it can mean to judge, it can mean to backbite, to gossip, to censor, to condemn, or to grumble against another person. This type of slander, this word, can mean talking to someone to their face, or it can mean talking behind their back, or it can mean blasting it out there into cyberspace, in social media. It's really not about where or who it's said to. And the issue is, here isn't necessarily whether what is said is true or false. We can slander with lies. We can also slander in this way with truth. What's at issue here? Again, isn't who it's said to. It's not necessarily whether it's true or false, but it's having to deal with the motives of our speaking, the motives of our communication. It has to do with the words and the content of our speaking, whether they are harmful or not. It has to do with the methods of our communication. It has to do with the effects of our speaking and communication. In all of these things, the words, the motives, the methods, and the effects, the issue is, are our words bringing hurt? Are they causing harm to other people? Criticism, speaking negatively, to others and negatively about others is a way of life in our American culture. I think it's ingrained in our society. We even have people who are professionals. They make their living by being critical. They criticize politicians and governors and presidents. They criticize musicians and people in the arts. They criticize athletes and coaches. They criticize business leaders and on and on. 
The article in the Chicago Times read this way. The cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, dishwatery utterances of a man who has to be pointed out to to intelligent foreigners as the President of the United States. People go, oh, he's the President. You might think that was written a President Biden, or perhaps it was written a President Trump. Well, it was written on November 20th, 1863, the day after President Lincoln delivered what is now regarded as one of the greatest oratories of all time, the Gettysburg Address. 160 years ago today, November 19th. The critics may be right or the critics may be very wrong. But there are always lots of them. And the problem, brothers and sisters, that James is saying is that you and I, even as followers of Jesus Christ, we often find it easy to drink the same Kool-Aid and to join right in with them. Most of us find it very easy to criticize and to castigate those who do not measure up to our standards, those who fail to meet our expectations, those who are just plain wrong, (laughs) criticizing all the way from the President of the United States to congressional leaders, down to community leaders, to church leaders, to coaches and teachers and bosses and, and supervisors and employees, and husbands, and wives, and children, neighbors, even the waitress, the mailman, the dog catcher. There's no one exempt from the amount of criticism that we can discover and dish out. The old comedian George Burns once said, it's too bad that the people who really know how to run the country well are preoccupied with driving cabs and cutting hair. (laughs) As he's sitting in those places, he hears people just criticizing and saying how it ought to be done. It still goes on today. Tomorrow morning around the water cooler at work or wherever, there are going to be lots of men who will have lots of criticism for how the quarterbacks and the coaches performed today and saying how they could do it better. If only I were making those calls. We all have a critical bent. And all too easily we slip into critical mode And we start speaking with sharp tongues to people and about people. The second problem that James points out, we discover, is we just keep going on in verse 11. He says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. The second concern he has, the second problem he mentions here is Judging. They are two related problems, but they are different. 
To judge is to decide against. It is to condemn. Slandering is an outward work, an outward action. That is what we do with our words or with our fingers on our phones or our computers. Whereas judging is an inward attitude. Judging is the underlying attitude that fosters, that gives birth, that grows critical speech, hurtful words. So James reminds us that the problem isn't just whether words of slander, words of condemnation come out of our lips. James reminds us the problem can be if we hold attitudes of superiority Attitudes of condescension, where we look down on others. <laughs> when will they get it? Oh, they're just so useless. Do we write people off as losers, as failures, as worthless, as inadequate? That's judging. Do we condemn people in our hearts or with words? Scarcely a day goes by as I'm walking through the world that I don't hear someone condemn someone else. Actually, they pray for God to do it. (laughs) Do we view other people as worthy of our scorn, worthy of our wrath, worthy of our condemnation? Well, because they're so bad. Rather than seeing them as someone of worth, seeing them as someone created in the image of God, Whom God loved so much, John 3.16, that he gave his one and only son. That Jesus came to die in their place to pay the penalty of their sin. Because God loves him so much, he wants them to be saved. Has provided a way through Jesus if only they will trust in him. How do we view people? Worthy of our scorn, worthy of our derision, worthy of our anger, worthy of our criticism, worthy of our judgment, worthy of our condemnation, or do we see them as someone loved by God who may be caught in horrid sin? James goes on. He's told us what the problem is. In verse 11, he continues and gets us to the root of the problem. Continuing on in verse 11. The one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. You see, when we slander our brother, he says we slander the law. And he says when we judge and condemn our brother, we judge the law. How does that work, we might wonder. I didn't judge the law. I didn't condemn the law. He says, well, when we set ourselves and when we set our opinions as the measure to which others must arise in order to be right, we have just set ourselves in place of the law. And when we judge others, we are in effect saying that the system is inadequate or ineffective. And so we have to step in to help it out. God hasn't judged them, so I'm going to step in and do the job. 
When we do that, we are judging the law. And he goes on, verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? He says, when we speak against our brother, when we judge our brother, we speak against the law, we judge the law, and when we do that, we got to recognize there is only one lawgiver, and just a helpful hint here, it's not you, and it's not me. There is only one lawgiver, and he doesn't name him, but he does describe him in just a second. We know it's not us. We know it is God. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ ultimately is the lawgiver, and he is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord one day. He is the one who will sit on the great white throne and judges everyone, all of the living and the dead. Everyone will face him either as Savior or as judge. And he says there's a problem because when we judge others, we are setting ourselves in his place. We are sitting in the wrong seat. We are usurping God's place. You see, James asks, who are you? A very important question. Who are you to judge your neighbor? What right do you have? He's challenging our arrogance, our hubris, our pride that sets ourselves up that we somehow are in a position to look down on someone else from some high and lofty position we think we have, to view them as unworthy, to criticize them, to judge them. Who are you, he asks. It's like my dad would often say to me when I was young, boy, you've gotten too big for your britches. And that's what James is telling us. When we judge our neighbor, when we judge our brother, when we slander them, we have just gotten too big for our britches. Judging our brother is a problem of pride. It is a problem of arrogance. Slandering others. Destroying them with our words, with some air of superiority that we know better and we are better. It is no small matter. James says, we have no right to judge. Three reasons I see here in the text. I'm sure we can come up with lots more, but three will suffice. We have no right to judge because we have no merit. We have no standing in the court. It's worth noting that James here, when he, in these verses 11 and 12, he uses the word brother three times. Now, in some translations like the NIV, it's only there twice, but in other translations and in the Greek, it's there three times. He uses the word brother three times. He uses the word neighbor. Those are not accidental words. Those weren't just there by random chance, random word choices. They're there for a reason. James is reminding us that you and I have a connection to and a relation to the people we slander. And it is not a relation of superiority and inferiority. It's brother 
We are among them. We are one of them. It is neighbor. We are among them. We are one of them. You see, these people that we slander and these people that we judge, we are lawbreakers ourselves. These people are fellow sinners. And when we judge others, it's like a bank robber condemning a pickpocket. It's like a murdering thug condemning a terrorist. We can argue manners of degree. We can argue the multitude of our sins. But the reality is we're all in the same boat. All of us stand before a holy God as sinners. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the penalty, the wages of sin is death. We stand guilty before him. And yet, instead of manifesting the feelings of a brother towards them, Someone in the same boat, we wrongly set ourselves up over them. We have no merit to judge. We also have no right to judge because as I go back to chapter 2, where we were there a few weeks ago, James was addressing, as you may recall, the issue of discrimination and favoritism. And he said this, he said, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts or evil motives? See, we are unfit to judge. We have no right to judge because we are unjust judges. Every one of us do this. In chapter 3, verse 14, he writes how we are prone to harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in our hearts. We are judges with ulterior motives. We can't judge others rightly because ultimately we will discriminate against some in the hopes of somehow making ourselves look better. Other times we will show favoritism to others. We will give others a pass, again, somehow hoping to make ourselves look better. We can't judge others rightly because we're judges on the take. So we have no right to judge. And we, thirdly, have no right to judge because we have no ability to judge. I go back here to verse 12 where he says, There is only one lawgiver and one judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. Who among us ultimately has the power to destroy, to condemn anyone to judgment? None of us can. Who of us can ultimately save, rescue anyone from judgment before God? None of us. We can't even rescue ourselves. There is only one who can save and destroy. We can't even fully ascertain the facts to know whether someone to give a, a, a good judgment. We, we, can't, we, we just simply can't process enough information. There's no way we can fully ascertain 
right from wrong and truth from falsehood because we don't have all knowledge. We don't have sufficient knowledge to judge and to know people's thoughts, to know their intentions, to really understand their circumstances. We have at best limited and often flawed observations and information and conjectures. Ruth Calkins, years ago, skillfully wrote a poem that describes our situation. She wrote, I spoke to her at the bus stop, but she turned the other way. My immediate reaction, a rush of resentment. She's ignoring me. She doesn't really like me. I've always suspected it, and now I know. Suddenly she looked toward me, startled, but sincere. (gasps) Forgive me, I didn't see you. Until then I hadn't noticed the agony lining her face. A hesitant pause, a catch in her voice. I just came from the doctor's office. Our little boy has leukemia. It's all a terrible nightmare. Oh, Lord, Lord, what loathsome selfishness. A mother stricken with grief, her heart soaked with pain. An hour of black catastrophe, and I only thought of me. Oh, cleanse me, Lord. Sanitize me until my first concern is for others and my last concern is for me. Is that not our problem? It's a pride problem. Concern for ourselves, focused on ourselves, self-absorption, self-righteous. And so James asks, who are you to judge your neighbor? The answer is no one. We are not the author of the law. We are not the determiner of what is right and wrong in this universe. We are not the enforcer of the law. And we are not righteous. We have not kept it. So we have no right to act as judge. Rather, we are among the condemned by the law, so desperately needing mercy and grace raises a question here when James calls for us not to judge. And the question is raised, should we ever or should we never make a judgment? It's a very contemporary question. I mean, do, do we never, are we, are we never to call anything sin? Are we never to say that this is wrong? For there are many voices that will say exactly that. Some will even come to this passage, to these verses. Others will go to Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 where Jesus says, Judge not lest you be judged. And they will say that therefore we cannot dare call any action sin. See right here, don't judge. Who are you to say that homosexuality is wrong? 
Who for you to who are you to say that this is a sin or that is a sin that sex outside of marriage is a sin that even murder is a sin who are you to judge so we're told not to judge not to say that anything is wrong or to call anything a sin is that what James is saying the answer is no Not at all. We don't actually have to go very far. Just go over a chapter. We'll actually be there in a couple of weeks. James chapter 5. And James says this in, in verse 20. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. I mean, we don't even have to understand the verse fully to recognize this. Whatever he's saying that we ought to be doing and whatever we can do, in order to do it, you have to be able to call sin, sin. You have to be able to identify sin. And you have to recognize that it's something worth turning back from. Enough that we help them to turn back from that sin. Likewise, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Again, you have to be able to identify sin and call it sin if you're going to call it the works of darkness and expose them. These, and I could go to many others, but we don't have time, these and many other scriptures are clear. As believers in Christ, we are to judge, meaning to discern truth from error, right from wrong, sin from righteousness. That is different than judging, meaning condemning others. But we are to discern. We are, as believers, to recognize sin. To study the Word of God enough so we can know what is sin and identify it. To clearly call sin that which God calls sin. That's how we know what sin is. God calls it sin. Okay, that's a sin. It's not that hard. And then we recognize it, we identify with it, it, we are to identify it. (laughs) We are to appropriately deal with sin in our own life, in the life of the church. The appropriate thing is to try to remove it out of our life, to get rid of it, to forsake it, to walk away from it. We're to do that. In our own life, and we are to do that corporately in the church to help one another. So James is not here forbidding the discerning between right and wrong, nor identifying sin and condemning that sin as wrong. What James is doing here is James is condemning two things. Judging, judgment, where We in our arrogance, we in our self-righteousness look upon others with condescension and with condemnation. Where we look down at others as though we are superior and where we condemn them. He's condemning that judgment, that judgmental heart. And then he condemns that which springs from a judgmental heart, which is slander. Words 
communication that destroys others to their face or behind their back. Criticizing, degrading, hurting others rather than helping them. These two things are wrong because they are antithetical. They are in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We began by reading from verse 6 of this chapter. But he gives more grace. What he is God. Grace more than what we realized last time as we were looking at this. It's grace that is greater than our sin. We are all sinners deserving God's judgment. But God in his grace made a way through our, for our rescue through Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. He bore that on the cross. All of the wrath of God towards sin was put upon him. And then after he died, he rose again from the dead so that we can be saved. Saved not by being good enough, by somehow doing enough good things, by somehow becoming a good enough person that he would receive us. Not by doing enough good works, but only, Scripture says, by coming humbly. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The one who understands that we can only come to God recognizing we have nothing to bring but brokenness, nothing to bring but emptiness, and beg for mercy through Jesus, trusting that he paid for for it all on the cross, just believing in him. The Bible says whoever comes to him in that way, he will not turn away. And if God has given that much grace to us, that is the gospel message. And if God has given that much grace to us, brothers and sisters, how can we not give any less grace? Or how can we give any less grace? How can we not give as much grace to others? See, as followers of Jesus, we should not be the slanderers or the judgers. As those who've received such grace, it should remove from us the pride of judgment from our heart, and it should remove the pride of slander from our lips. Let's pray. Father, there may be somebody here this morning who may be heard for the first time, maybe somebody watching at home who heard for the first time how much you loved them and what you've done through us, for us through Jesus, how they need to believe in him to be saved. I presume, Father, though, that most of us listening this morning profess the name of Jesus. We're followers of his. But I have a feeling, Father, that we're not that much different than the people to whom James is writing and that there are some of us who have sharp tongues that we have used to slander others to their face or behind their back. Maybe folks in our home our children, our spouse, maybe it's folks at our workplace or other folks at church or our neighbors or whoever. But Father, it ought not to be so. Father, there are probably the many of us 
who have a heart that has become proud and has become judgmental, looking at others with condescension, looking at others with condemnation. And again, Father, it ought not be so. Fill us with the grace of Jesus Christ which you have given to us that that grace spills out in our words and it spills out in our actions and it wells up in our heart so that the world may see your grace and your love in us. Lord, may you make these things so in the lives of this church. In each one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.